Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner and Alexander Lashley. For as little as $3, you can gain access to patron-only episodes, as well as access to our Discord server, where we host weekly live discussions with host Ekoi Hero and myself. So if you like what you hear, come join us at patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head. Please do rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. We're on Reddit, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or the podcast in general, then email it's not just in your head at gmail.com. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. We are fortunate enough to have Jenny Brown talking with us today after her amazing book about abortion. And it brings up quite a few questions. One is, why are Americans, American women, being denied control over one of the basic systems of our bodies at this moment? What's going on here and what to do about it? I wonder what your thoughts are about why now we've had Roe versus Wade and permission to have abortions and one in four American women has had an abortion and we felt we didn't have to be incubators for male sperm. And now that is changing and six unelected people with right wing convictions are taking that right away. And it makes me wonder why, since by your own statistics, the overwhelming majority of Americans support abortion rights, how are they getting away with this now? What's going on? Well, thanks, Harriet. That's a great question. And thanks for having me, everybody. Um, so I think, uh, I think something that we were not aware of when we did win the abortion rights that we got under Roe and, and some of the state laws that we got preceding Roe, like in New York State, um, I think we were not really aware that we had the wind at our back in the sense that the, um, the birth rate had stayed quite high after World War II. And, um, and the ruling class was split on, on the question of abortion and birth control rather, um, rather remarkably. Like the, the Republicans, for example, in New York State, the abortion repeal uh, Act was uh, was sponsored by a Republican. Um, so, so why were they split on it? Well, the high birth rate was something that they were um, complaining about. They complained, "Oh, women are having all these children. They're filling the welfare roles. Um, why can't they just keep their legs closed?" All of this really sexist stuff. And then, um, and at the same time, the main opposition. Uh, at the time was the Catholic Church, which basically had its 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 various um, you know a uh, lot of arms uh, trying to trying to keep the laws the same or even make them more strict. So um, we didn't have a a huge uh, evangelical movement opposing abortion at that point. Um, we and we basically had Republicans who were split about the question of whether abortion and birth control should be available. And they were complaining um, uh, also that, uh, you know, the population bomb meant that crime and overcrowding in the cities, rebellion, they even blamed communism on, um, on burgeoning population. So, so they were very concerned about this. Well, uh, fast forward to now, we have the lowest 
birth rate on record in the United States at 1.64 children per woman. And this this has really been a trend uh, that Europe has been ahead of us on um, and Japan. And uh, economists in the U.S., including, you know, people who are generally regarded as liberal, like Larry Summers and uh, Paul Krugman, have been um, pointing at Japan's economic stagnation for the last 20 years and saying, well, see, this is what happens when you have a birth rate so low that your population starts to decline, which which started happening in Japan in the early 2000s. So um, they're very concerned about what this will do to economic growth. It's really the first time that capitalism has, has encountered this problem. Um, so that's one area. And then the other area that they're constantly talking about is, um, is the age ratio, which basically is the, the number of children versus the number of retired people. And um, they, they are worried that if they can't really cut back our retirement and our Social Security, if we don't have larger families on whom we can then depend when we get to retirement age. Um, so they really want to dump the, the expense and support of, of retired people and people mm-hmm. who are past their working age onto, uh, back into the family. But they can't do that if we're having such small families. So, so that is, you know, and usually that's pitched as, oh, the demographic crisis, a demographic time bomb. Um, you know, the entitlement programs are, are you know, being burdened by all these, all these old people, right? Um, and uh, basically just a, a, a disrespect for people who have worked their whole lives to, to make somebody else rich and now have nothing to show for it. And they don't even want to give us the, the dignity of a... Of retirement, so so that's um, those are the two main worries. Now, functionally, why are we facing this? I think one of the reasons we're facing it just sort of is the dysfunction of our uh, of our government right now, which um, essentially is allowing the Supreme Court to legislate. And so we've had all of these cases um, that have been had really profound effects on on democracy in the U.S., including. Um, the Citizens United, uh, which which basically allowed unlimited cash um, to flow into uh, into political campaigns, um, getting rid of the uh, the the safety net for um, for voting in the South, which basically in Shelby versus Holder, where uh, essentially they've they are now allowing Southern states to to return to kind of pseudo Jim Crow type type, type uh, uh, policies and basically making it more difficult for any anybody um, any, anybody to vote, um, which which skews it to to uh, richer people, and then um, you know making uh, right to work throughout the public sector, all of these things, um, you know this which which weakens unions in the public sector, um, and and now abortion, right? Mm-hmm. And for that matter, just recently, oh, the EPA can, cannot regulate greenhouse gases. But what has been the legislative response to any of these things over the last 15 years? We haven't had any legislative response because the Senate has this filibuster bill. So uh, the filibuster rule means that any 41 senators can stop anything. Um, and the Senate itself is so undemocratic because, you know, 
two senators from Wyoming, two senators from California with, you know, what, 40 times the population, right? So, so we have this situation where we have, we're being legislated to by, by this, this, as you point out, this um, very right-wing, tiny group of, of people who have, you know, are appointed for life. Um, and we have no legislative response possible. So that's another why are we in this situation? Right. Because if I think about the family that will result from um, not allowing abortions, it will be like what I would call the fascist feudal family in Nazi Germany, where women were considered inferior in charge of kitchen, church, and children, where their job was to be subordinate and take care of men and children and home. And they were not allowed to use birth control. They were not allowed to have children. They also had to work in the munitions factories, but were paid less because actually that wasn't their true mission. And ironically, they didn't have more kids because they were so wiped out from having all those jobs. But that that was the family of Nazi Germany. And I think that's how they want to solve America's contradictions with an authoritarian state. Because, you know, Hitler made promise to make Germany great again, too, with an authoritarian state, with male supremacy, and with women as wombs and domestic laborers. And yet, there, and I think a lot of, a lot of, White men missed the time when they were great before because they had a family wage that controlled their wife and children. And some women also feel a terrible loss because they lost protection for life. When you got married, you did all the domestic labor, you connected your guy with his friends and relatives, you produced and took care of children, you took care of the house, you took care of his emotional needs, and you were supported economically for life. And they've lost that position. So a lot of Americans are feeling loss, which could be compressed into a fascist program or no, we deserve better. And I, you know, I think that the abortion decision by these unelected right wingers is trying to push women back into a fascist, back, not really back into a fascist family, because it used to be that. As long as you were white and in a family headed by a male, if you got married, you would be supported for all your domestic, emotional, and social labor. So, so that's what I think is their agenda. Sorry, Liam. Yeah, no, it's all it's all good. So is it is it very much a deliberate decision about population uh, numbers and, and that essentially we need more people to. Uh, be the workers, be the soldiers, and the abortion laws get in the way of that end. Yes, but I also think that it's a way of juicing a movement that America used to go be great. And if we reenact the restrictions that we used to have, it will again be great. If we just reinstitute Jim Crow and discriminate against Black people and keep women in their inferior place, then America will be great again. And they don't want to face that the American century is over. Yeah, am I right in thinking that <clears throat> Roe versus Wade had 
problems to begin with because it was based on not really on women's rights but more on privacy is that correct yeah i mean the the thing about the thing about roe is that it was very much a compromise with what, what the movement wanted um the movement wanted free abortion on demand. So the free part becomes much more important as as medical costs rise. But it was always important because uh, abortions, you know, initially costed when when they were first legal in New York, costed two hundred dollars. So, um, it, it, you know, that wasn't that that wasn't easily available to pretty much anybody. Um, now, briefly, the. Uh, uh, Medicaid did cover abortions nationally from 1973 to 1976, and a lot of people, a lot of people availed themselves of that. Uh, 300,000 abortions a year, so so a lot of people needed abortions that they were that they were getting at that point, um, and that was that was stopped um, under Carter. Carter signed the signed the Hyde Amendment initially. It was a, it was an issue in the in the election. Ford staked out a position against it. Carter was for it, and this basically banned any uh, federal funding for abortion. So, so that, that meant that we really had no. Um, no right to abortion. We we merely had the right to go out into the private market and attempt to purchase one. Yeah. So, so that and and you can see like the contrast with Argentina, which just won legalized abortion abortion in um, in 2020. Right. Their law says that within 10 days, if you're requesting an abortion, the the health system has to provide it to you. Like you know, that's sort of the opposite of ours, where we have to have a waiting period, right? So, um, and they and the movement wanted it to be five days. They didn't win that, but they won it in 10 days. So that sort of shows what a an abortion right would actually look like if we had had won it in the U.S. But we never really won the right. What we won was the ability for. Uh, the, the states were basically prohibited from from putting in certain uh, s- certain restrictions, and then as the Supreme Court decisions have piled up, they've allowed more and more restrictions to the point where there are so many restrictions in some of the southern states. Even before the Dobbs decision, it was it was very difficult for a lot of people to get abortions. Um, and so, so I think when we look at this, we should say, well, we don't want to go back to 2021 on abortion law. We really want to go forward and make it uh, a national right through a national health care system, uh, Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it, where everybody has the right to all the health care they need. That is really how we can get um, reproductive rights in reality, including contraception, which is also quite expensive. Yeah, it's very important because I think what you had in Argentina, which where they won abortion in spite of the Pope making an in-person visit um, to his birthplace to try to get them to vote against abortion, is they had that kind of unity of the indigenous movement, the socialist movement, the feminist movement, the black rights movement the climate movement, all supporting them. And I think in 1973, we had a de facto coalition because the riots were happening starting in 1968. They also had a very unpopular war in Vietnam that people were demonstrating against. And they really couldn't afford to have millions of women out there demanding the right to abortion as well and being dissatisfied. So I think... They felt they had to give 
And I don't think they feel that now because there isn't a unity on the left, even de facto, the way they used to be and the way they well, the have, other fa- have been. Sorry. The other- yeah, the other factor there is, of course, you had the entire socialist world with abortion legal and um, free, you know, in government hospitals, right? You could go and get it, um, including Poland, where it's now completely illegal. So um, so people could go behind the Iron Curtain for freedom, right? So that, that really was really embarrassing and, 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 and just add, added to the, uh, to the pressure on the U.S. government to do something, you know. It, meanwhile, we had whole wards of of people uh, with botched abortions, uh, you know, dying or or terribly injured, um, you know. Whereas you could get a, you could get a, a free legal abortion at, in a hospital in Moscow. Yeah, that's true. That competition made them give a lot more than they would have. And I I think that if we are to win these rights back, we have to make a coalition of all people who are deprived of their rights, which is an awful lot of people in the United States, including the climate movement, being deprived of the right to live. But that would have to happen on the left the way it did in Chile and in Argentina and also in Colombia. That... In South America. Sorry, Harry. I just want to pick up on that sort of the observation you made just then and in the book. This this idea that in there's a difference in sort of birth rate between capitalist nations and you know previously socialist nations and how they changed over time. Um, I don't know if you could talk about that a bit because yeah, yeah. yeah so. Um what I, what I observed is that with a couple of exceptions, um, so the so all the socialist countries uh, made abortion legal shortly after they won. Um, this was true in Vietnam. It was true in Korea. It was true in uh, uh, Cuba, Russia. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Soviet Union was the first, um, and so. So you have to ask, okay, why why was that? Well, first of all, um, they they believed in equality, uh, and in the Soviet Union, certainly there was a lot of uh, there, there were a lot of laws passed for for women to have equality. Um, but they also believed that women had uh, contributions to make other than just as as mothers, right? Um, so they tried to make it easier for for people to have babies and and put a lot of uh, resources into maternity care and creches and 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 um, you know laundry, laundries and uh, 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 cafeterias to get the to get housework out of the home and basically lighten the burden on people so that they could do other things right. Um, and in Vietnam, you also see that that they they had this plan, which was to lighten the burdens on women workers so that they could do other things than just uh, than just raise kids. And one of the parts of that was to give them control over reproduction. Um, so that was an ideological thing. And then, um, but then the other thing is, and you see it in China, right, which has gone from which went from uh, a, a 
position of having a, a one-child policy to slowly loosening that to a two-child policy, and now they're really actually in trying to encourage births. Um, the one-child policy came in as part of the Deng Xiaoping reforms in 1979, um, and what they what their stated reason for it was and by the way it was it was one child if you were urban if it was two children if you were rural and if you were a national minority you could have three children because those were oppressed groups um so so the, and they brought it in because they felt that the gains that they were making from development were basically getting spread out too much among this burgeoning population that they had and they wanted to consolidate those gains of development and and basically have each person have more stuff, right? So that that's only a situation that you can can have in a socialist country where they're actually sharing stuff out, right? Um, so that was the stated reason for the policy. And as capitalism has been restored and more and more of of China has has basically become capitalist, um, they have realized that they need to feed the needs of these corporations for workers. And so they've, that's why they have loosened these policies. Um, in, in, and also you see this in Russia. So in the Soviet Union, abortion was made legal be between uh, 1921 and 1936. In 1936, abortion was outlawed under Stalin's changes because they were afraid, you know, here was... Hitler saying he was going to annex parts of Russia. Um, in my comp, he talks about how he's going to annex parts of Russia. They and they were under attack from from every European country. Um, basically, sent troops and and the U.S. sent troops into into the Soviet Union trying to trying to overthrow the government. So so for military reasons, they got rid of that. Um, then in '54, they uh, they restored it in the post-war period. They restored uh, abortion rights and. And basically had full abortion rights up until the overthrow of communism. Now, after that, they started to work. There was an incredible drop in the birth rate because living conditions got so bad when the looting of the state happened, and the you know basically the oligarchs took over, um, and living conditions were so terrible. The the death rate went up drastically. Um, and the birth rate went down drastically. And so now it has become a theme of the Russian state to try to raise the birth rate. And every year, Vladimir Putin gives speeches about how we have to raise the birth rate. And they have also put enormous amounts of money into um, cash support for mothers. Um, so that's their preferred way of doing it. And they that's raised the birth rate slightly. But you can see that that now they're now they're very concerned about about the birth rate, whereas during the socialist period, it was not really an issue. All that post-war period, you know, it was birth rate you know, was around two point one round replacement. Nobody was freaking out that there weren't enough people to man the factories. Nobody was freaking. It was it was not an issue. Whereas in in the U.S., when we have a, a round replacement or below replacement birth rate, or in China with capitalism restored, they're very worried about that. So I think that's it, it, now there are cases of horrible reproductive coercion uh, and, you know, Romanian orphanages and, and all this stuff. Um, but, uh, but for the most part in socialist countries, they have a much better record on the, on, first of all, um, on 
on contraception and repro- reproductive rights in general, partly because they're willing to go up against the church, but but also but also there's not this massive need to to create profit opportunities through the growth of the system in general, which has relied primarily on population growth since the inception of the system. Populations have been growing, so that's I think that's an interesting contrast to make and, and to say, okay, what is it about capitalism that it that requires us to have births at baby boom rates in order for the system to continue and to not stagnate? So that's a question that that we should be asking. Well, yeah. I also think that right now, what's happening is that. They have exported a lot of the good jobs overseas. And we've gone from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. And women and men's wages have more have become more equal, not because men's wages improved, but they stagnated. And so women now make 82% on average of what men make. But people are rejecting shit jobs now. 20 million people dropped out of the labor force during the pandemic because they were being exploited, underpaid, and told they were essential. And the contradiction was just too much. And so I think what's happening is also they kicked out the immigrants who used to wash dishes for almost nothing in an oppressive environment. So between getting rid of the immigrants who took the shit jobs and were underpaid and people refusing the shit jobs where they were underpaid and a massive unionization across the United States, unlike anything that was seen before, except in the 30s, they're getting nervous and they want to have a lot of cheap shit labor. And these neglected, unwanted children with inadequate upbringings would be the dishwashers of tomorrow without allowing immigrants to come in. And the low page clickers in the in the um, grocery stores and so on. So I think they want to replenish the bottom of the labor force that they don't allow in because of immigrants and because they underpaid people so terribly and told them they were essential, people are refusing. In, in all these, uh, these examples of control, historic and, and present, I think one of the things, you know, one of the stats that was really interesting in your book was that um, 25 to 30% of women are going to um, need abortions, whether it's legal or illegal. So these forms of social control, you know, it's questionable how much they they sort of, quote unquote, work for their particular ends, given that, um, you know, it's, it's very similar to the drug policy stuff. Uh, when we spoke to... Um, was it Carl Eric Fisher? Was that his name? Yeah. When he was yeah. talking about, you know, when they try and ban um, substances, all it does is it just drives it underground. Like there's still just the same amount of demand for stuff. So there's a sort of lunacy to the tr- to trying to control well, everyone, right? It's, uh, it's interesting because I was just reading this American Enterprise Institute report from 2018 which is uh, all about the declining fertility, right? Um, so this is a right-wing think tank that has been promoting capitalist interests. And the, and, and the report, first of all, it has empty bassinets on the front cover, right? <laughs> um, and, 
And they, uh, so it's by this guy named Lyman Stone, and he mournfully says, well, you know, these, even even really uh, strict uh, laws making it, making abortion and contraception legal are probably not going to raise the birth rate by more than about 5%. Um, what we really need is, is to sort of change the culture and um, he he points to uh, the former Soviet state of Georgia um, as as an example um, where you know the the head of the church there has has said you must have children and you know they have, have all this you know basically there's a lot of um, a, a lot of propaganda around it that you know your your role is to have children whatnot so we could see some of these bans and the crackdown on contraception. As um, which is also another aspect of this, and and mm -hmm. we're going to see more of that if the Supreme Court decision is any indication. Um, but I mean, even under Trump, like half of the Title Ten family planning visits uh, evaporated. Like they, the, those policies really made it hard to get contraception. So um, so when you when you ban contraception and abortion, it may not. Uh, raise the birth rate much, but this this sort of culture of disapproving of abortion, disapproving of contraception, trying to get people to think of to identify themselves, someone as Harriet was saying, you know, with um, with their their uh, ability to produce children and the family, and sort of enclosing, getting rid of of other options for women and enclosing them back into the family to make that basically the only option that you have, I think very much is on their agenda. And they're hoping, you know, through a combination of making these things illegal and disapproving of them and all this religious propaganda and all and and other propaganda. Oh, the, the this particular um, American Enterprise Institute guy Lyman Stone is big into uh, his big thing is promoting marriage, how great marriage is, and this is part of his idea of like if if people get married, then they'll have kids, which I think he's got the causation wrong at you know right. people get married because they're planning on having kids but um but it, you know it, there's definitely a correlation and he thinks if we can just force and discriminate against women enough to make the family the the best option for them then maybe we can force them into raising the birth rate and pat buchanan uh, uh, uh you know former nixon speechwriter and various like right-wing presidential candidate at various points um who claims to be responsible for for as he says running the sword through child care uh under the nixon administration um his whole thing is uh you know that we have to discriminate against women more vigorously and so that you know he he believes that the that the equal pay was um you know a siege gun against against the west he talks about this he also calls the he also calls um contraception the suicide tablet of the west right so so it's very much he's very much into this racist replacement theory um stuff but but his idea is if you bring back discrimination against women in jobs, then they will be forced back into dependence on husbands who will then have power over them. And then they will, what Harriet was saying, you get, force you back into the family. And that is, that will be the only way that you can fulfill yourself is through having kids. So, I, you know, I, I think it's part, I think the, the, uh, banning abortion and contraception, while they might not immediately have 
uh, effects on the birth rate. Although I have to say that banning contraception in uh, in parts of Texas where uh, in 2011 there were there was uh, massive cuts in contraception funding, and they and there there was a whole area where there were no no clinics anymore. Birth the births raised were the birth rate went up 27 percent. So it may be that they can actually force this through abortion. Not so effective as we can see from, for example, Poland, which still has one of the world's lowest birth rates, despite uh, um, despite having banned abortion. But when you when you get rid of access to contraception, that can be, I think, a little more effective than even this American Enterprise Institute guy thought. But at the same time, it's it's part of a whole plan of of enclosing people back and forcing the expenses of. Uh, of having kids back into the family and back onto our strained wages. That's that's kind of the agenda for, um, you know, it's it not just a high birth rate agenda, but it's also who's going to pay for an agenda. And the agenda around that is that is that any expenses have to be borne by the by family, the family. Out, out of our paycheck. It's not going to be guaranteed. It's not going to be paid publicly. Yeah, one of the problems with that, though, is they've wanted to push women back into the situation of the 50s without pushing back the conditions of existence of that family, which were a family wage for the white male. And so that's they could have the fascist family where they have women forced to work and also forced to subordinate themselves to their husbands, but then they're so exhausted they can't have children, which is what happened in Nazi Germany. The birth rate didn't go up as planned because women couldn't conceive it. They were too wiped out. Yeah, I mean, the crisis, they're, you know, they're facing this crisis on all these different levels, and uh, they, you know, basically the idea of the family wage, which which is sexist in the in all the ways that we just described, but at least it meant that corporations were providing some resources for raising a family, right? But now we are we are completely on our own. Where both parents are working, they're getting eighty or more hours a week out of a couple, and there's there's no resources for raising the kids. There's no the family the family job, which used to be paid by. The man's, you know, in the ideal like good union job situation where where the man's wage paid for the kids and for a spouse to do all the the, the care work. work. We yeah. don't have that anymore, right? So right. so that's created the crisis within the family, and that that resu- what has resulted is people are just having fewer kids. I mean, my group, people were saying, well. Uh, you know, I wanted to, but I just decided to stop at one. I can't. It's it's too much. I can't do it with the time, the expense, the childcare expenses, the, the lack of reliable health care, no time off at work. I mean, it's just too much. So, um, and then many people are deciding not to have any kids. So that's kind of the that where the struggle is is. Uh, expressing itself is in this low birth rate, which we're calling in my group, we call it a, a spontaneous birth strike um, using using an early 20th century term that uh, Emma Goldman used, a spontaneous birth strike that 
but we are all blaming ourselves. We don't see it as a political thing, and we think it's important for us to see it as a political thing and not just think of it as our own personal failings to make right. it work. I think that's completely right, because the biggest development among married people now is married people, no children, because they're too expensive. And because everybody gets divorced, really, it's more than 50% because 50% are formally divorced. But then another 20% at least are people who have no kids and no valuable possessions enough to fight over it. So they just split. So you have about 70% of people splitting in a marriage. And people, women don't want to be left with the kids. And so they're the ones refusing marriage now, particularly among blue-collar women. That's why 42% of kids are born outside of a marriage, whereas in the 50s, it was about 15%. It's huge, and it's an economic issue as well as a social one. And the only way I think they could pull off getting women back is to have a fascist family like they had in Nazi Germany. And even that didn't increase the birth rate because women were wiped out from all the jobs they had to do. Well, I think it's really interesting as well what you're saying about this um, particular right-wing think tank and that they have to change the culture, that there has to be propaganda. I think um, one of the things that came out from reading the book is just how much the... Uh, initial sort of women's liberation movement, their demands, how how relevant um, the the sort of seven initial demands are still. Yeah, right. Um, and how unmet. And how, yeah, and you know, particularly the last one was about you know the workers control the profits. Um, that that's another sort of ra- rabbit hole to go down. But the the thing that is fascinating is like you know you very much outline in your book things that worked and things that work in terms of changing laws in terms of pushing uh for a society where abortion is uh you know legal and uh free and easy right and that these certain things that work are just conversations being actually being able to talk to each other and like exactly like you said people are sort of um when they're just having the one kid or whatever they're just sort of seeing it as a personal failure or something opposed to sort of systemic like a social issue and right. and on this on this um i think we should talk about all these things that work to push to sort of push back and you know sort of create the 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 world you actually want to live in but um sort of one of the most fascinating things is all the things that don't fit neatly into the right wing's position right the one that blew my mind was 7 out of 10 women that get abortions are already mothers yes yeah so that uh, I don't know. It sounds like both uh, both Harriet and Equal. You knew that. Like maybe I'm just being a sort of stupid British person over here. But no. <laughs> like, is that a known thing in America? No, I people, think that's people a are very thing. surprised. That, I think it's a worldwide. St- I mean, statistic in general that it's not just an American statistic, if I recall. Mm. Well, I think that even Margaret Sanger, as you cited, Jenny was appealed to by these women who had more children than they could possibly handle. I mean, the right wing here likes to say, likes to sort of um, demonize anyone who wants an abortion, but um, 
and and I think I I may quote in in the book this uh, this this mom who went to get an abortion and she thought she was like some terrible Medea like person for for wanting to get an abortion even though she already had a kid and then she was astonished to read that most people who get abortions in, in the U.S. and I guess Ikoi says worldwide are are people who. Uh, who have kids so so it it I, it's part of the propaganda that that oh it's it's just you know these careless teenagers or whatever that are that are getting abortions right. but it, it, uh, clearly clearly it's all kinds of people <laughs> getting abortions right well i would say that the things that worked um for it, that we should bring into the into the current situation in uh in the 60s are what Harriet was talking about, this this general uprising was very effective in winning a lot of things because the power structure was frantically trying to peel off different segments of of the movement and, and sort of neutralize them. So, for example, we got the Occupational Safety and Health Act, partly because the, because the Nixon administration wanted to uh, appeal to workers in a way that it was losing its chance to appeal to workers. Um, we, you know, we got abortion. Probably they were trying to trying to get women to calm down, um, and and various other things. So, so, so definitely a a, a broad left movement with with all of these demands in it is is was was one of the ways that we won. Another way we won is, and this was very clear in the in the situation with the referendum in Ireland in 2017. So they had bumped along with a sort of a reform, abortion reform movement for decades. And and basically the content of it was trying to create a few exceptions to the the ban on abortion in Ireland. Um, and one of the things was, well, would you have, would you have two shrinks sign off on the person was suicidal, or could you just have one shrink sign off on whether? Well, all of these debates about like, well, if it was rape, could would you have to prove it was rape? Blah blah blah. All of that. We had the same problem in the U.S. We had a small reform movement that went along and tried to change these change the laws with these little exceptions, but it didn't appeal to the general public because most people didn't think they were going to be in that kind of a situation. Very, you know, and it wouldn't help most people who needed abortions. So. So it was when the women's liberation movement raised the demand for free abortion on demand where people saw, oh, wow, I could get this. It would be free. This is what I need. Um, that galvanized an enormous uprising on the issue. Same thing happened in Ireland when they went from these small demands to a demand, a group of um, anarcho-feminists in Dublin came up with this this idea of uh, free, safe, legal as the as the demand, and we're able to lead the movement into that into talking about abortion. They named their campaign the Abortion Rights Campaign. They were told, "Don't use the word abortion; that'll turn people off." They said, "No, we have to talk about what we want." And they were able to. I mean, they won overwhelmingly. They were very surprised. They thought it was going to be extremely close. They won by sixty six percent of the vote. Um, after a huge campaign in which they did a lot of door-to-door canvassing. And I think this is important, too, getting people to talk about abortion in more than just this very surface sort of um, a, a moralistic way. 
and really think about the issues and, and of course, think about all of the people and learn all the people in their lives that have had abortions, um, that was able to happen in Ireland because of all this canvassing, because it was on the ballot. And we're going to have the opportunity to do that in various states where abortion is going to be on the ballot. So, for example, in Michigan, they're putting it on the ballot. Um, in Kentucky, there's going to be a referendum that is actually anti-abortion, but it's the same conversation, right? Vote against this referendum around abortion in in Michigan. So there are going to be all these opportunities to really have deep conversations about what is this about. And I think we also need to include, like, what is this about in terms of having control of our reproduction when reproductive working conditions are so bad? Um, but that was, I think, that is very effective. And I noticed that when you look at the polling around abortion, in the 90s, there's a big leap in support for abortion rights. And the 90s were when we really went back to uh, doing a lot of mass mobilization around abortion. So it's really effective um, and getting people to think about it in ways that they had not thought about it. You think, oh, there's all this abortion rhetoric. Everybody knows everything. They've heard everything about abortion. But it's not really true. They haven't really thought about it in their own sort of context. And and it, so that that's important. The other part that was incredibly important was the speak outs People talking about their illegal abortions, getting up, women, whole panels of women saying, we had illegal abortions. Um, Harriet's sister, Roz, was one of the first people to testify about this. So, like, actually talking about the illegal abortions, and, and, and this contradicts everything that we hear in the current sort of liberal version of this, where oh, abortion is a very private and personal decision. It's between you and your doctor. You shouldn't talk about it in public. You shouldn't be forced to testify about it. Well, obviously, people shouldn't be forced to testify about it. But it's very important that we do testify about it and do talk about it. And that will make it safer for other people to talk about it. And eventually, it will become just this commonplace thing, right? If if we're scared to, and if we're shamed into not talking about it, as we are by both liberals and conservatives in this in this situation, we will still end up with everybody thinking it's something shameful, it's something secret or private. And instead, what we said is the personal is political. We have to make this public. We have to talk about it. And I have to say, shout your abortion. I have to give a lot of kudos to this was basically a, a, hashed, a, a couple of women who testified about their abortions and it became this hashtag that went viral, blew up, and, and uh, thousands and thousands of women t testified about their abortions. And um, so that kind of thing, we need to do more of that to give people yes. who are feeling shame the the sense that oh no this is not something that i should have to keep secret that's right i think that's huge i also think that you know one of the things that's in our favor these days and that the supreme court is reacting against as it's progressive is that religion is much less popular than it has ever been, particularly among young people. And the um, kind of misogyny that evangelical religions espouse, like the Southern Baptist Conference on Men and Women, 
and they are the largest Protestant denomination, says that women should be subordinate to men. Men should be protective of women. Women should be subordinate. They should never be your boss or anything like that if you're a man. And yet, probably because they're always caught literally with their pants down over and over again, Jerry Falwell liking to watch his wife have sex with the pool boy and investing in the pool boy's gay club and the guy from Liberty University Board of Trustees who died with a dildo up his ass in a rubber suit, which didn't look good for the church. All You know, their expose as perverts hasn't helped. And their numbers are dwindling. And so are the Catholic churches with the expose starting in the year 2000 and increasing and increasing, even in South America, of their sexual predations against children. And I think that the the moral high yes, ground... This was this was very important in the Irish case because yes, they, had just, they had exposed both the sexual abuse of children and the Magdalene laundries where... Where right. women were, that put, was were, a big... were right, and and then also um, this this uh, horrible uh, operation that they forced on people, where they basically break your pelvis in order to uh, allow the baby through, right? Instead of a cesarean, the, so all of that really dis, uh, made made the church, and and they had also just won a marriage equality referendum so that gave people hope so uh, very much like church uh, people may still you know have beliefs and religion but they were very anti-clerical at that point so that, that that's a that was a very important thing and i think that's got to it's got to have been true um as well to some extent in argentina um oh yes yeah but so. i think also that there's a there's a great bit in your book for there's a it's not a testimonial as such, but it was somebody talking about working in an abortion clinic and that they uh, were fully aware that there were Catholics going in there for abortions and that they, there was a sort of, ex- they saw themselves as the exception to the rule. Like, you know, they were doing the responsible thing or something like that. And that, oh, you it's know, worse, it's worse than that. The actual picketers that were picketing the clinic would, would bring in their daughters to another clinic across town to get abortions or or anti-abortion women who were actually active in the movement would come and get their own abortions and they always thought oh well they were the exception and all of these other people were terrible and they but they had real reasons to have an abortion and and the the you know the clinic staff would say no you're you're you have exactly the same reasons that all these other people do <laughs> Right. I mean, that's a very common, that's a very, very common thing. You know, I mean, I, I, when I was in school in Orange County, which is, you know, very conservative county in, in Southern California, right between LA and San Diego. But, you know, I used to be very active with doing like sex ed and, you know, abortion rights and whatnot on campus. And, you know, I would, you know, often have, you know, the some of the members of the, you know, the anti-abortion groups sometimes take me aside going like, hey, can you give me information for a friend? 
Right. Always for a friend. You know, it's, uh, you know, for a friend or, you know, one of them, you know, was honest and was just like, you know, I'm in a, you know, kind of a bad situation, you know, and I would always provide them information, you know, and, and, and be like, Hey, like, you know, I I hope this changes your, your position uh, on this issue because, you know, same thing. Everyone is, you know, like you, you know, People have abortions because they're protecting their future. They're protecting, you know, their family. Um, even they're protecting their family, their life. I mean, you know, various various reasons, right? There's a, there's a great quote in the book: "Having an abortion made me happy. I was not forced. I was not forced to become a mother." And 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 the idea of testimonials being really sort of powerful, people sharing those stories, people sharing stories like the, uh, the you know working in an abortion clinic and seeing these people come in, and then also you know statements like that. I've never heard that um, in an abortion debate. But then you know I'm, it's not surprising. I'm you know a dude in Britain, and I'm sort of not fully. Um, clued up <laughs> really until reading this book but I was like wow like immediately there's some part of my brain that was like okay that, that's got to be the title of the trailer or the episode because that would just make everyone really mad <laughs> <laughs> well I mean that was one of the major you know one of the major aspects of abstinence only sex ed I think in terms of you know when you're talking about the culture of being able to discuss these things you know, did, I think, really set back an entire generation? Yes, it did, but only among the really religious. And I think... No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I absolutely disagree with that. So so hang on. So what was the point? The abstinence-only sex education that was in schools. Right. And that basically shames people, right? Well... Well, it doesn't only shame people. I mean, like, you know, the the gay men has usually, for the longest time, has been a really strong supporter of reproductive rights. You know, back in the 80s and 90s um, and, you know, early aughts, like when I was very active in the issue, it was like very, very common to see like many gay men. And to, to this day, the older gay men are, but a lot of the younger gay men aren't because they've been subjected to abstinence-only sex ed at schools. And yet they're not abstinent. And I have read that in the schools where they teach abstinence only, there's a much higher teen pregnancy rate. There is, there is, but there is an, there is a, you know, so absolutely, it it has nothing to do with abstinence. I'm just saying it's, it creates a, you know, if you're going to talk about the culture of, you know, it it created a lot of shame about abortion, about birth control about people, you know, also not knowing any basics about their bodies. And I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to sometimes, you know, like you, you have to do a lot of explaining and informing when, because you know, it's, it's really common when I talk to people that they don't understand the difference between a birth control pill, a morning after pill, and an abortion pill. Right. Yeah. And they need to yeah. know. But I think right. that, and this is even even the New York Times gets this wrong. I have to say, from watching the discussions of the morning after pill and the abortion pill, they, I mean, even journalists are are guilty of this. It's right, it, right. Which is, you know, it's not 
that it's I, I you know it's not that difficult of of uh they're they're very they're you know i mean the birth control pill and the morning after pill are somewhat like more closely related together in terms of ex, uh, actual pharmaceutical products yes. right um but yeah it's it's kind you know there has been a huge gap of you know over 10 years because abstinence only sex education still happens you know pretty regularly in public schools but you know of just being able to you know i mean none of these programs ever mentioned abortion at no, all look, there's only 17 states in the united states that have biologically correct sex education so we're really talking about a desert here. But I think a very important thing is the invocation of religion. And the Supreme Court passed three pro-religion rules also. Parochial schools can now get public money and people can pray, that football coach can pray on the football field and so on. And that it's not, it was not illegal uh, to have a Christian flag outside of the state house in Boston, that they are trying to push religion, which also pushes shame on women. And, you know, the only really good woman in, Christ in Catholicism is the Virgin Mary, who never had sex. And so, you know, women, that's so much for women's sexuality. And women are constantly being humiliated and punished for their sexuality in the Bible and the Koran. And so by pushing religion, you push shame on women. However, as these organized formal religions fade among young people, religion too is losing its clout. And I think they're panicked about that and want to reinvoke religion to teach women to be ashamed and responsible for men's transgressions as they were in Genesis and have their husbands rule over them, as it says in Genesis. So there is a whole right-wing movement here. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that, that, yeah, and that goes to kind of the, what the American Enterprise Institute guy was talking about. It's like, we have to somehow create a world in which People think that this is what they should be doing, having kids, being in a family, having large families. Um, since we don't have the economic uh, uh, support for that, they, you know, they, they're having to gin that up pretty, pretty far in order to make any difference. But, uh, but that is definitely the thing. And, you know, it's interesting because there was a there were thousands and thousands of clergy in the in the late 60s starting in 1967 there was the clergy consultation service for abortion which did re abortion referrals to illegal you know basically all abortion was illegal at that point so to doctors to doctors they they referred across state lines hoping that would keep the prosecutions down and it did help a little bit but Basically, they relied on these doctors who were willing to um, risk their practices providing abortions, and but they gave they they were in almost every state. They were doing counseling and basically a referral service, um, and this was all you know progressive clergy and and uh, rabbis and just a, a bunch of clergy. And where are they right now? Right, where is the pro-choice? 
um, religious community, I'm sure they're out there, you know, make, making a lot of noise, making a lot of noise. But we need to encourage that because, you know, I, I, that's the answer to this, right? Is, that's part it, of the answer. Totally. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and, and, another, and they were, yeah, they were very brave about it. And I think that needs to, that whole idea of a clergy consultation service for abortion could be, could be gotten back up again. Because if you're in a in legal state, you're going to need help getting to a legal state to get abortion. And, and why not have a clergy consultation service? Yeah. Well, they have now they do have other sources plus transportation and payment for your abortion across state lines, but it doesn't have the religious power behind it. However, I do but think people people might not know how to get to it. Right. So that's true. I, there have to be a lot of there have to be a lot of different angles so that this is really available. Um, to the maximum number of people. I mean, this is, it's going to be an information war in many ways to get, not to mention the price, right? And some people can't leave, uh, you know, to fly to New York. They have kids. They have to figure out, like, uh, childcare. They might not trust the the people that they're, uh, you know, they might not have a trustworthy person to give childcare. They, you know, it's like all kinds of stuff that you have to arrange in order to just pick up and leave. And so, so the other thing that's different from the 60s is the availability of abortion pills. So aid access... Um, which is based in Austria, will do consultations with you by email, text, and phone, and then they will send you the pills from India. They send them into all all states in the U.S. It doesn't matter what the laws are. Um, so if people are interested, they should go to aidaccess.org to, to find out. They're also doing advanced provisions so that you could have the pills to give to friends if they need them. Um, and then plancpills.org does trainings for ambassadors of information on the abortion pill, what's available, how you can get it, the cheapest options and and the most reliable. PlanCPills.org, I highly recommend them. They're very organized. And they actually do um, have a scorecard of various places you can get the pills. How fast will it be? What's the expense and all of that? So, um, so there are a lot more options and a lot lower barriers to entry than there were in the '60s for actually providing abortion services. Um, you know, in the '60s, you actually had to know how to do a procedural abortion um, in order to provide that. Now we we have all these other options. And I should mention that um, the the second pill in the in the abortion pill combination. Um, misoprostol is also um, effective on its own. It's much eighty-five uh, percent effective, um, and it's much cheaper. Um, it's uh, uh, sells under the uh, under the brand name Cytotec. It's often prescribed for um, to protect your stomach if you're taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and keep you from getting an ulcer from that. Um, so, so we have, and that pill is available. Um, it's over the counter in in uh, in Mexico um, and is available in flea markets in Texas and whatnot. So so there are a lot of options that we have right now that we never had um, in the previous period, which which make it even less likely that they're actually going to be successful in raising the birth rate through this. They're just going to make a lot of people miserable. And this conversation continues for another thirty minutes on our Patreon. 
So why not join us over at patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Alex Placito, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Jennifer Cox, Justin Harper, Rebecca Johns, Seamus O'Connell, and Sheena Belmus. If you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And you can hear more from Harriet on her radio show called Interpersonal Update. It's on WBAI at 2.30 EST on Wednesday afternoons and in the WBAI archives.